Well, good morning again. It's great to see all of you. I want to start out uh, by going on a little trip through time. We're going to go back to when I was in high school, and I had to take chemistry. So how many of you had to do chemistry in high school? How many of you did chemistry in college? God bless you. I don't know how you did that. Uh, Chemistry at my high school was uh, taught, kind of team taught by these two incredible teachers, Mrs. Lowry and Mrs. Foley. Mrs. Lowry was one of my neighbors, so I would actually like see her around in my neighborhood, and I heard of her chemistry class long before I took it. So we're all kind of relating to this, right? Because we all had that teacher in high school or that subject that we heard about before we got there. Like, it was going to be hard, or it was going to be really challenging. Mrs. Lowry lived up to the, her reputation. She was one of the most challenging teachers I've ever had. She was also one of the best teachers I've ever had. I uh, was a junior when I took chemistry, And most of the people in my high school took it when they were sophomores. I was a unique and special snowflake because I was held back a year in math, which then delayed me a year in science. So all my friends took chemistry when we were sophomores. So here I am, I'm one of two juniors in a mostly sophomore class. And if you've been through this, you kind of know where I'm going with this. Like, you're sort of the grizzled veteran, like, oh, you kids don't know. And all the 16-year-old sophomores are running around like, isn't this great? And in the midst of that, I'm feeling like quite a bit of insecurity because like I'm the odd man out, right? Like I'm the guy that's older, I'm the guy that's sort of in a strange place. And I I wanted to start taking my grades seriously. I wanted to start doing well academically. Um, I had a great group of friends that were really encouraging me in this, but I just felt like chemistry was going to be the mountain that I could not climb. Like just Mrs. Lowry's reputation of being a hard teacher, the subject itself was mystifying to me. I had really not good math scores and all that kind of stuff. So coming into this class, high bar, carrying a lot of insecurity around it. And Mrs. Lowry, as she did for hundreds, if not thousands of students over her more than 20-year career of teaching, she pushed me. And she pushed me and she pushed me. But she did it in a way that was good for me. And she did it in a way that was loving. She knew I was struggling. She knew I was, you know, sort of angrily one of her only juniors in her class. But she believed in me. And I'll never forget, I don't even remember what I was doing. I was probably complaining, because I tend to do that. And she just looked me straight in the eyes. I remember she was standing on one side of the, the black chemistry table, right? Like the big, heavy, like, you can't catch this thing on fire tables. She's over here. I'm over here. She's a petite woman with just a shock of white hair and glasses. And she's looking at 17-year-old me. And she looks at me, and she goes, Travis, you can do this. You can do this. I know you're in my class, I know this is hard, but you belong here and you can do this. Imagine how many kids she said that to. Just imagine how many times she had to call somebody to higher ground. Her gift to me in that moment was not, now go memorize the periodic tables, or go figure out the metric to standard conversion rates, which still flitter through my brain from time to time. It's kind of weird. It was her affirmation that was a gift. Her confidence in me was a gift. And that gift was vastly superior to my negativity. Think about this with me. I had all kinds of stuff in me. I can't do math good. I can't do science good. This is not going to go well for me. And all that was kind of this rising tide. And here comes Mrs. Lowry. And she says, Travis, you can do this. And all of you that are teachers in the room, I know we got a bunch of you. Thank God for you because you're stepping into that reality for that kid every single day. Her gift was vastly superior to my negative self-talk. Her gift of encouragement, of you can do this, overwhelmed my sense of being lost and wayward and out of place. The gift is greater than the trespass. 
the gift is greater than the trespass. Can you say that with me, please? The gift is greater than the trespass. The scripture says the gift is not like the trespass. If you want to write down a thesis statement, it goes like this. Christ's gift is vastly superior to our trespasses. Christ's gift of himself is vastly superior to our trespasses. Now, we're going to be at Paradise Baptist Church in two weeks, so I want to, I want to do some practicing for some call and response. So throughout the morning, when I say Christ's gift is vastly superior to our trespasses, I'm going to ask y'all, how superior? And you're going to say vastly, all right? So how superior, Bethany? Vastly. Do it again. How superior? vastly more superior than the trespass. That's where we're headed this morning. It's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Michelle used it for our call to worship, that was, or our confession. That was not a coincidence. We are going to talk about how Christ's gift is vastly superior than our trespasses. So there's a three-part outline in your bulletin, death dealing sin, the rescuing gift, and everything in a nutshell. And by the way, those titles are not mine. They came from Eugene Peterson's translation of Romans. Eugene Peterson passed away this week, so I want to honor him and kind of celebrate the wonderful life that he led and the contribution he had to Christian scholarship. So death dealing sin is where we're going to start. If you want to have an image in your head, this is somebody dealing cards. And the deal that you will get every time we come into contact with sin is death. death will not deal, sin will not deal you anything else except a hand that brings death. This is, for those of you that are kind of catching up with us, you haven't been here, this is Romans 1, 2, and 3, right? So we've been preaching through the book of Romans. We're on Romans 5 now. Romans 1, 2, and 3 is all about the repercussions of the kind of lives that we all stumble and fall into. There's always a logical consequence to our actions. And when we're dealing in sin, the consequence is always death. So we're going to look at this through two different lenses this morning. Adam and Eve is the first one, so kind of sub-point in your bulletin. And then dominion is the second. Adam and Eve and dominion. So the first one, we're going to talk about verse 12. So if you have Romans 5, or if you'd like to look at Romans 5, I'd encourage you to do that. Get out your phone, get out your Bible. There's a couple of Bibles at the back table if you'd like to grab one. And we're just going to read a little and then talk through it. And read a little bit and talk through it. So this is verse 12. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, all and so spread because all have sinned. What does that mean? Paul's using a lot of different terms here that can kind of make sort of a circular argument. We're going to try to straighten that out a little bit. What does it mean? It means there is a patient zero for sin. Patient zero, right? What's patient zero? That's the person that caught the disease at the very beginning and then spread it out into the rest of the population. There is a patient zero for sin. Sin didn't just happen. It didn't just explode into human life like the Big Bang. Someone brought it in. And according to Genesis 2 and 3, that was Adam and Eve. Now, Paul mostly talks about Adam, but I think we need to be more equal opportunity here. So we're going to include Adam and Eve. Paul says, Adam and Eve listened to the whisper of the enemy. They chose to go a different route. God desired for them to live one way. They made a different decision. This is Genesis 2 and 3, but this is also Romans 1, 2, and 3. The logical conclusion of those decisions is going to be something destructive. And it's going to change humanity's existence in some very powerful ways. That's what he's saying in verse 12. There was a catastrophic event. Sin entered into the world. Patient zero is identified. And now we continue to live with that disease as part of our existence. Relationship with God, which should be our foundation, is now broken. Not broken by God, but broken by us. And the conclusion of that brokenness is what we all see or feel or experience all the time. 
loneliness and isolation and pain and despair. These are, see, they're despairing right now. (laughs) These are not things that are foreign to us because of sin. Anytime we see these things going on in the world, anytime you see a headline that breaks your heart, like we saw countless times this last week and in the weeks before and all that, that is sin. That is brokenness and pain, that it is real. And that's why the Christian worldview is uniquely positioned to deal with the world as it actually is, because we take sin into consideration. Paul carries this a little bit further. I'm getting into dominion now. This is the word that he uses here uh, in verse 14. The phrase is, death exercised dominion. Now, I didn't use dominion in my conversations this week. Like, you're in my dominion. Dominion in the text is a wonderful Greek word that is basileo. If you know Spanish, what is the word basileo or basilica? Anybody? Italian? Church or cathedral or castle? It is the same word. Kingdom, rule, reign, where you're supposed to be in charge. What Paul is saying here is you think you're in charge. Human beings think they're in charge. The Roman churchgoers thought they were in charge. And what he's saying to them is, death has had dominion in your lives since day one. And this was not news to the Jews, but it was a fresh reminder for them that they are living under the consequences of sin. And for the Gentile Christians that are in the church in Rome, oh yeah, we kind of share that with our Jewish friends and neighbors. We are all wrapped up in the same bucket. And so are we. And this is where we need to get kind of practical because every one of us thinks we're in charge of something and we're not. We think we're in charge of our moral goodness. We think we're in charge of managing our addictions. We think we're in charge of the patterns that we have in our lives where we go, I really don't like that about myself, but you know, I'll just, I'll deal with it later or whatever. That is often death exercising dominion. And if you walked with someone through addiction, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's something in charge of their life. Or if you've experienced addiction yourself, there's something in charge of your life. It is not you and it is seeking to kill you. But we have manageable addictions, right? Public figures have manageable addictions. I've been listening to a book on tape uh, about Lyndon Baines Johnson. So LBJ, uh, president from our past. He was driven throughout his life by this incredible lust for power, and he wanted to get stuff done for his constituents. He brought power into the hill country in Texas, literally like there was no power in power lines, and he helped bring that about to help these people. So he did good things, and aren't so many of our leaders like this? There's this mixture of good and bad. There's ambition, and there's pride. LBJ was one of the most secretive people to ever hold the presidency. If you got a note from him, if you knew him, like in college, at the bottom of the note that he wrote to you, he would say, please destroy this note. He was so secretive. He was so sneaky. Why? He didn't want to give away power. And later on in his life, it isolated him from the people he loved. It brought him into a corner further and further and further away from reality. It broke him. And yet, this is someone that led our country. Death exercised dominion even in his life, and he was secretive about it, and so are we. That's the point I'm trying to make. We all have our version of, now go destroy this note after I give it to you. We all do that. My question and my challenge is, if we agree with Paul that sin is pervasive and it only brings death, are we willing to admit to that? And we just admitted to that together in confession. And are we willing to admit that that's an ongoing problem? Is death in the driver's seat for you when you go to work? Is your ambition so strong, so pervasive when you come into your job that you just kind of jettison all your other convictions and you go, you know what, today I just need to win. 
And if that's what happens to you, I get it. I have walked Microsoft. I have walked all these other places. I'm not saying these are bad companies. I'm saying the culture that is so often pervasive around where so many of us live, work, and play is so competitive and so seeks to stifle us, and it is a culture of death. And yet we are not called to go perpetuate the culture of death, are we? You can say no. We're not called to do that. We're called to a different way. What is the truth of your addiction to the culture of your workplace? Or the culture of your school? Or the culture in your family? Are there things going on that need to be named? And could you do that in a gracious and loving way? Don't go throwing truth bombs. Take a ruthless moral inventory. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's one of my favorite things that they encourage you to do when you step into Alcoholics Anonymous. Take a ruthless moral inventory. And ask yourself, where is death exercising dominion in my life? Where am I assuming the worst of other people? Where am I being secretive? Find a safe place to dig into that. Maybe you've got to pick up that relationship with a counselor again. If you need a list of counselors that I think are great and trustworthy, come talk to me. Take a ruthless moral inventory and find a safe place to deal with it. Maybe you deal with it in your marriage. Maybe you deal with it with the best friend. But you do it safely and you do it in a way that brings life and not death. That's the point. If we recognize that sin is pervasive, we can step into something that brings us life, not death. So death-dealing sin, part one. Now we've got to talk about the rescuing gift. This is where we get to smile a whole lot more. If sin is pervasive, the gift needs to be that much more pervasive. So you ready for your response? Christ's gift is vastly superior to our transgressions. How superior, Bethany? Vast. How superior? vastly superior. Now, the image I want us to kind of hang on to here is all the things that become vastly superior that are bad. Credit card debt, compounded interest, really bad, really fast, right? If you have repeat offenses in our criminal justice system, things get really bad, really fast for you. There's a compounding, there is a maximizing, a multiplying effect that happens there. When I worked uh, at a hospital, this was kind of gallows humor at the hospital, but we had a group of people that we referred to as the frequent flyers. So if you work in a hospital, you've probably heard this term, but it's folks that would just come into the ER and you'd see them one week and then a few weeks later you'd see them again. And it was sad and painful. These folks could not get healthy. They were experiencing all kinds of illnesses and setbacks. They just couldn't get well. And the gallows humor was, yeah, those are our frequent flyers. This is the compounding effect of brokenness. But that's not what the gospel does. The gospel is a multiplier to the good. That is so hard for our framework because we live in a cynical and dark time to go, there's a multiplier for the good? There's something that creates greater and greater things over time? It's not like credit card debt that keeps dragging me down. It's not like getting sick all the time that keeps dragging me down. It takes me up. There's something like that in the world? Oh, yes, there is. And we're going to do it in math form. Are you ready, math people? We're going to have some equations, some theology equations. Here we go. Jesse's going to put up this slide behind me, and then we're going to explain where this is in the text. This is your math homework for the day, guys. One trespass plus judgment equals condemnation. You can write that down. One trespass plus judgment equals condemnation. We kind of expect that. Like, this is the one that's really fitting in with our framework. Where am I getting this from? Verse 16. Paul writes, The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So one trespass, one breaking the rules, one bad word said against your neighbor, one act of uh, secrecy, whatever, one time infraction in a just universe has to lead to condemnation. 
If we worship a just and powerful God, this has to work because he is responsible for maintaining the just order of our universe. This is how it has to play out. Just one trespass, one encroachment, and our good and just judge has to maintain that order by balancing the equation, right? We all know how to balance equations with condemnation. And condemnation is a rough word for us to hear in our day. But here's something fascinating. I had no idea about this until I got into the text this week. The word condemnation only comes up three times in the whole New Testament, all in the book of Romans. Two are in Romans 5, and one is in Romans 8.1. And if you know that verse, you can say it with me. For now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. What's the point I'm trying to make? Only in the gospel can something as awful as condemnation, punishment, justice, can it be linked to something like freedom? That's it. Only in Romans 8.1, only in the religion where we follow Jesus Christ, can condemnation be this real word, this tough word, this thing that is actually in the text that's hard to stomach, and it's connected to grace. Only the gospel brings that. So the first equation, just one trespass and you're out, balanced by condemnation. That's how a just universe has to function. But now let's look at the equation that will blow up our math minds. This is the second one. This is also in verse 16. Many trespasses plus the free gift of grace leads to justification. This is at the beginning part of verse 16. And the free gift is not like the effect of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's the first equation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings worse punishment, right? You're a repeat offender. It brings massive amounts of of pain on you, right? That's how it should work. But the equation is different. What's different about the equation is what's in the middle. The free gift of what? Grace. Can you say it with me? Grace. The free gift of grace balances out the equation in a completely different way. One infraction, justice demands condemnation. Many infractions, many missteps, a lifetime of breaking away from God, the propensity of a whole species of people to increasingly develop our addictions and not seek help. When grace is applied, it's like a balm being rubbed into a wound. And it brings healing. And it brings transformation in a right relationship with God. That's what justification is. It is being rightly set before God so that he can rightly relate to us and we rightly relate to him. It should not work. The math should not work. If you're an accountant and you're like, I hate this, the math should not work because if one transgression brings a whole bunch of pain, shouldn't a bunch of transgressions bring a whole bunch of pain? No, not because of the middle part, because of the middle part, because of what is applied. This should not work, but it does. This is the miracle of the gospel. And if we blow through this, we'll miss it. So my encouragement, if you want to do something practical this week, meditate on this incredible miracle. How have you seen grace actually wipe out stuff that should have done you in in your life? How have you received forgiveness and mercy and a right relationship with somebody when everything that should have happened to you should have been isolation and get you out of here and you've broken it too many times. Think about, meditate upon the miracle of grace in your own life in the week ahead. Use these equations if you would like to do some fun math. Now, 
That's the rescuing gift. Now let's talk about in a nutshell, because Paul is doing a great thing for us here. He's summarizing for us what he's done. This is like great communication 101. You tell him what you told him, you tell him what you tell him again, and then you tell him what you told him, you told him again, right? So this is Romans 5, verses 18 through 19 in the message. And he's just summarizing. So just listen to this summary, because I know for some of us, we just need to catch up a little bit. Here it is. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong, And got us in all this trouble with sin and death. Another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he, Jesus, got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many people in the right. Common misconception about the Christian faith is, is when we follow Jesus, when we accept the gospel, that's our ticket, and we're off to heaven, and that's it. It is that. It must be that. But what the text is telling us is there's much more to that. The phrase, he got us into life, more than getting us out of trouble, Jesus Christ got all of us who follow him into life. What does that mean? It means that the gospel must be better than just a ticket to heaven. The gospel must bring something into my daily life that is transformative. I loved when Jessica mentioned this at the beginning of our worship. When we come tired, when we come kind of spent to worship, that's called Sunday. (laughs) That's a normal day because we all go through this. And then we choose to worship. We choose to be in his presence. We choose to be here even when it's hard. And that is the gospel being pressed into our lives by a decision that's not about our feelings. It's about the one that we worship. I was trying to get my head around this this week. And as is often my pattern, um, my way to kind of get my head around something is I go running. Anybody else do this? Like you're just feeling a bunch of things and you're like, I gotta go. So I went running and I parked near the river trail and so I'm running the trail and I come back and there are these baseball fields and I stand near the baseball fields and I've kind of got my arms up on the chain link fence. I'm kind of leaning in, stretching a little bit, but just looking out at at the field. The fall colors are out, it's really pretty. And I'm asking Jesus, like, I'm thinking of you guys, and I'm thinking of this sermon, and I'm going, how does this work? How are you getting me into life, Jesus? And I'm not kidding you guys. I felt like in the moment when I had my arms up there on that chain link fence just leaning in, that there was somebody right next to me doing the same thing, just standing there with me, arms up on the chain link fence, looking out of the field, nothing special, just a tore up baseball field. But he met me there. Can he meet you at your school? Absolutely. Can he meet you at your office in your cubicle? Absolutely. Can he meet you at your kid's playground? Or if you're a student, when you're sitting there, you're getting ready to take notes, can he meet you there? Can he stand with you and lean his arms on the fence with you? Can he sit in the desk next to you? Can he walk with you as you go to your car? Yes. Absolutely. That's the indwelling life of Christ. That's 510, that's a whole bunch of different parts of this chapter. This is what he is inviting us to. Can you picture him with you in those places? That's one application that we can all take together here. And then the last one I want to leave us with touches on an earlier part of the passage we didn't have a chance to read. But if you want to read something devotionally this week, go read Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Amazing section of the scriptures. Kind of breaks my heart that we didn't spend a lot of time on it this week. But there's a couple of connections that only the gospel allows us to experience. This is starting in verse 3. 
Paul says this is one of the effects of the gospel. We boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Some of you memorize this. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Only in the gospel are things like that connected to one another. Only in the gospel do we look at suffering. Do we look at awful events in the news? Do we look at the things that are going on in the world that are real and painful? And do we go, there has to be something for us to endure And then there will be character formed on the other side of this. There will be something that God is doing in my life and your life that I can't measure right now. And this suffering makes no sense to me, but it makes all the sense in the world to God. And if you are facing something like that right now, or if you are watching that happen in someone's life that you love right now, lean in. Lean in to that suffering. Where are you suffering right now? Where is someone close to you? Someone you're seeing them suffer and you're going, why God, why are you doing this to my friend? Why are you doing this to my kid? It may be because there's an endurance for you and there is a character formation for you that you need to get through. Only with God is it possible for this kind of thing to work. That great phrase that Jesus says to his disciples, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Only Jesus makes this work. And he made it work in my life because I was a confused high school kid in a rough chemistry class that could have been on a road to nowhere. And instead, I had a great teacher tell me, you can do this, Travis. You can do this. And this is not pithy, you know, self-talk, self-help. This is a reality for me now because I'm realizing those doubts I had about myself as a teenager in chemistry are still a part of my life. I'm not as concerned about chemistry now, but they're still a part of my life. And I still have to wrestle with Jesus about that. And having him stand next to me as I looked down in the baseball field was his way of saying to me, I'm with you through your self-doubt. I'm with you through the things you tell yourself you can't do, the tough tasks that you don't feel like you're up to, parenting and strengthening your marriage and growing in grace and kindness and pastoring a great church. All of those things, I have to believe that God is building my character somehow. And I look at all of you and I believe it for you too. I believe that he is building character in you that you may not be able to see right now, but it's coming and it's going to be good. Do you believe that your suffering is producing character? Do you believe that could happen in the life of somebody that you love? And could you be called this week to just speak that to somebody? Let's say you go get a cup of coffee with a friend and they're telling you about some things that they've been through and you alone can look at them and say, I hear you and I hear, this, I hear you describing your suffering. I receive that. And I'm also seeing this. I'm seeing you become a more patient person. I'm seeing you become someone who is more selfless and more generous. I'm seeing character develop in you that you may not see for yourself. Maybe that's your job this week, is you get to speak that into somebody you love. And you get to change their life like Mrs. Lowry did for me. So we're going to wrap up this message together by actually taking time to pray. You may have noticed that we have our prayer stations up in the back two corners of the room. If you haven't been here before, this is one of the ways that we try to respond to the text and try to kind of drive it in deeper. So, In a moment, Jessica is going to come up and lead us in our final song. During the final song, I want to invite you, as you're ready, to go to one of these two prayer stations, and there's notepads and there's pens, and I want you to write down something. Write down a prayer. You don't have to put your name on it. You can write down a place of suffering. And this could be as easy as my job. You could just write my job and stick it up there. 
Don't put your name on it. And it could be for you. It could be for somebody else. And what we'll do is we'll take up those prayers and we'll pray over those places of suffering at the end of our time together today and say, God, suffering is not the end of the story. You have more for this person than just what they're experiencing right now. That's one option. The second option is you could write a praise of when God has delivered you through suffering into that character formation. You could write down like, man, in my past, God took me through some awful stuff. And on the other side of it, I have seen how he has shaped my character and I praise him for it. You can write a praise. It's not just about the things that are burdening us right now. It's the places of God's faithfulness in our past that we need to celebrate as a church. So pick one or just write down whatever you want to write down. And then at the end of our worship, we'll gather those prayers, we'll bring them up here, and we'll pray for those prayers together. I invite you to share your suffering. I invite you to share your joys. And we will respond to the faithfulness of our God through a time of prayer. Would you join me as we pray now? Mighty God, we're so thankful that you are the God that we can cry out to you and say, why? Why are you doing this? Why is what I'm facing so hard? Why am I going through this? And we may not get an answer to the why, but we will get you. Because you get us. You receive us as sons and daughters. You've called us your own. Right now our kids are studying about Abraham and how belonging in the family of Abraham means you belong to Jesus Christ and we belong with you. And so we thank you for that great gift. Thank you that the gift is not like the trespass. That the gift is vastly greater than anything any of us could have come up with. And when we're in our sins and trespasses, we tend to think, I tend to think, This is the worst. How am I going to get through this? What have I done to deserve this? And instead of that being our response, may we as a community now write down our places of suffering and write down our places of great joy where you have been faithful to us and may we celebrate and pray together in just a moment to bring you glory. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.